Well, I'm blessed that you're here tonight. I'm always very encouraged when people come outside of Sunday for really anything, but especially, especially to the most important ministries of the church, which are ones like this, right? Um, now, this is a... Uh, okay. Yep. Yep. You said you can hear me in the back though, right? So, yeah. Okay. The sheep hear the shepherd's voice, Adam. (laughs) You're the only one that didn't hear. (laughs) We'll get there. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I'm always encouraged because I have an interest in the deeper things of God's word. And I don't get Christians that at all that are totally disinterested in that. But I would say the vast majority of Christians in our world today don't really care about anything beyond like the kindergarten basics of their faith. And my passion has always been to be part of a church that, you know, takes people and puts the cookies up on the top shelf and makes them reach a little bit for it. And so um, 242, which is based on Acts 242, where the early church met for the disciples, to, to review the apostles' teaching, among other things, is why, why we uh, have, have chosen that name. This is a ministry that's intended to um, teach you things that are helpful in terms of studying Scripture, understanding the background of Scripture, taking you a little deeper than we really can on a Sunday morning. So, preaching is a combination of teaching and exhortation, I would say. Uh, so when we preach, we help people to understand a text, but we, we aim for application and we communicate it with urgency. Whereas in teaching, urgency is not really what we're aiming for. And we're not necessarily even aiming for application. We're aiming for content. We're aiming for understanding. Uh, we're aiming for a growth in skills to handle God's word. And so the 242 ministry exists to that end. I'm not a PowerPoint guy. I don't have any fancy visuals for you. I don't even have any handouts. You just have to bring paper, take notes. Um, We're going to be heavy into content. And uh, I just think that'll be a real blessing to you if we can communicate it properly. So I'm going to start with prayer. And then we're going to get into our first of seven nights, making sense out of the Old Testament. So ready to go? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the love that you have for us, that you have uh, communicated your word clearly and soundly for millennia to your people. And Lord, we, we want to handle all 66 books of the Bible well. Uh, the Old Testament can be somewhat ambiguous for many Christians. Uh, we pray, Lord, that we would um, understand, though, that it is your word and that all scripture is beneficial for teaching, for reproof, for building up in righteousness Equip us, Lord, through your word so that we might be better students of it and uh, ultimately that it would affect the way we worship and the way that we serve. So we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Who's, who's, where's the baby? Oh, the Kern baby. One of the many Kern babies is here. Yeah. All right. So making sense out of the Old Testament. Um, there's a ton of stuff that we could discuss. And so I'm being somewhat selective and I, I want to kind of feel out this group a little bit too, to see what, what is of most interest to you, because there's a lot of different directions I could take, but I did prepare many things for tonight to get us going. And um, so we're just going to get right into it. So I want to start off by talking about 
the background and the composition of the Old Testament. So when we say the Old Testament, we understand the Bible is in, in its English form has 66 books. And how many of them are New Testament books? Can anybody tell us? 27. And how many Old Testament books? Do the math. 39. Now, um, when I say the English Bible, I say that because some of these books were originally one book and they were divided into two simply because of their length. So when Hebrew writers were writing them out on big old scrolls and they became like really heavy, sometimes they would split them. So that's why we have a lot of first and seconds in the Old Testament scriptures. And it really has more to do with length than anything else. So we're talking about, when we talk about the Old Testament, we're going to talk about everything from Genesis to Malachi. So I want you to pay really close attention to this. I think this is probably one of the most important things I'll tell you in the whole course. So the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, is 39 books from Genesis to Malachi. Now, how much of the Old Testament is the Old Covenant scriptures? Now, before we get some answers, most Christians don't even think about that. They just think, well, everything in the Old Testament is Old Covenant because Old Testament means Old Covenant. But it's not true. Not everything in what we call the Old Testament is Old Covenant. For example, none of Genesis is Old Covenant. From Genesis 11 onward, we have the Abrahamic Covenant. So we have the beginning that the foundation laid for really the beginning of the Old Covenant, which started when? Think of a mountain, starts with an S. On Sinai. When Moses received the law and came down, that's the Mosaic covenant. That's the beginning of the Mosaic covenant and the beginning of the Mosaic covenant in Exodus 19. Remember, we have the Decalogue, the 10 commandments in Exodus 20. So 19 is when he's up on the mountain, he's receiving revelation from God. That really is the beginning of the old covenant. So we have 50 chapters in Genesis And we have the first 18 chapters of Exodus that really aren't old covenant scriptures. They're pre old covenant scriptures. And that's really, really important for us to understand because oftentimes you have Christians dismiss the old Testament because Jesus fulfilled the lie. It's fulfilled the law. That means none of it applies. Okay. There's huge problems with that. That's like way, way oversimplistic. But even apart from that, even if you believed that none of the old covenant was relevant for today, even if you believe that, I don't believe that, but even if you believe that none of the old covenant is relevant for today, you would still have to admit that the first 50, what did I say? 68 chapters are. So we have old covenant, Genesis to Malachi or old Testament, but the old covenant really is Exodus 19 and following through to the end of Malachi. So when we study our Bible, it's almost like we have four kind of major time periods that we're working with. We have pre old covenant, which establishes all kinds of foundational teachings about God 
and salvation and human sinfulness and ethics. Then we have the old covenant, starting with the Mosaic covenant. Then we have the New Testament era. And then as we're studying on Sunday morning in our church, Revelation is largely about after we die, after we're with Jesus. So there's, there's different major periods that we're covering uh, when we're looking at, at the scriptures. So um, just keep that in mind that when you're talking about application, because we're going to be asking questions like, well, what, what part of the Old Testament applies to Christians? You kind of have to ask that question differently of the first 68 chapters than you do for the rest of what we call the Old Testament. Okay, so just keep that in mind. Here are just some questions we're probably going to get to. Uh, how much of it applies? Why are there so many laws? And what about all those weird laws? There's some weird laws from our vantage point. There's some very weird laws in the Old Testament. It's like, what do I, what do, I do with this law? I can't even think of an analogous situation. So there's a question that rises when you read the Old Testament. How about um, ethics? The Old Testament has titanic implications for ethics. So what would be a definition of ethics, by the way, so we're all thinking in the same way? What's just another word for ethics? Morals, exactly. So when we talk about ethics, we're really talking about morals. So oftentimes, Christian teachers will take a stool like this and assume it has three legs, not four. And they'll say, this leg is theology, this leg is ethics, and this leg is apologetics. So, theology is content of the faith, apologetics is defense of the faith, ethics is the practice of the faith. Really, it's just the, the how-to, how do I act in this situation, what's right and wrong. So, this one's right and wrong, this one's about how to defend it, this one's about content. So the foundation of all New Testament ethics are actually grounded in the Old Testament. And let me say this, write this one down. Most of them are grounded in the first 68 chapters. Most of the things that we would consider right or wrong about life and death, the value of life, who God is, the nature of sin and salvation, that, that's not stuff you're just discovering in Malachi. That's stuff God is very much revealed in Genesis, for example. So our morals largely come from the Old Testament, but there are some moral questions there, like questions like, well, what about capital punishment? Where should we stand on that? I'm just thumbing through my New Testament looking for verses. Well, you actually have to go back to Genesis to to talk about that accurately. Questions like slave laws. Why are there slave laws in the Old Testament? That's kind of weird. And I thought the Civil War once and for all put an end to any notion that slavery would ever be appropriate. How about genocide? Holy War. We like to trash the Muslims because of their modern day teaching on jihad. But the old Testament actually has analogous teachings when it comes to the genocide of the Canaanites in order to conquer the promised land. So we need to deal with that. Like how do we approach scriptures that say, Hey, 
Go kill everybody. Men, women, boys, girls, kill them all. Babies, everything else. That's in our Bible. And it begs the question, how does that affect our ethics? How about war? Is it right to go to war under what circumstances? So, folks, all of these questions, which are all highly emotional and relevant, are actually based on our reading of the earliest books in the Old Testament. And if you're clueless to the Old Testament, you're not going to do very well in the New Testament because the New Testament builds off of the Old Testament. We have other questions about prophecies, the nature of prophecy, the relevancy of prophecy, the qualifications of a prophet. Many of these questions are answered when we learn to approach the Old Covenant scriptures well and to read them well. Let me just break that down there a little bit. So, when I say approach, really what I'm talking about is if I just open my Old Testament scriptures, I just happen to land on Nehemiah 8. It's not enough just to learn how to read. Oh, I'm, I'm reading. Oh, I know who Ezra is. I know what a priest is. You, you obviously have to know how to read, but you also have to know how to approach it. Like, what are the presuppositions I bring to this book? When did this happen in human history? What were the circumstances? Who were the original recipients? Who was the author? Was it written around the time it happened? Or is it being written centuries after the events that are being recorded there? So these are all, these are just some of many background questions, which if you flub is probably going to hinder the way that you read this book and every other book. So we're never obviously perfect and all knowledgeable in these things, but I would encourage you to enter into a lifelong pursuit of understanding Bible background. And that will hugely help you to read the scriptures. You'll become quicker at it. You'll be able to teach better. You'll be able to digest quicker. Um, If you just spend some time giving yourself a background for how all this stuff, how and when this stuff took place. Now, the next thing I want to do is talk a little bit about a timeline. So, a, a date timeline of major events. And some of these events we will circle back to in later lectures. So when you're reading a a novel um, or a history book or whatever, you can flip open to the front few pages and you'll find a publishing date, right? Well, the Bible's different because it's a compilation of events and books written long, long ago, sometimes separated by hundreds of years. So instead of reading the Bible flat, as if somebody sat down and wrote it all at once, you need to be able to think about a biblical timeline and where the events fit in. I think when I was a kid, I thought, when I was very young in Sunday school, I thought some guy who must have loved Jesus by the name of James, who became a king, wrote the Bible. And 
you know, shortly thereafter, I think probably one of my Sunday school teachers corrected me that, corrected me on that. But I remember thinking to myself, hmm, that's how they must have talked back in Jesus' day. Some guy named James must have wrote all this because I just thought of it as one book. I never thought about the fact that it's 66 different books, but it is 66 different books. And the events it records take place at different times. So let me just give you a few. We're, we're not going to touch on a date for creation yet because I, I need to do some more extensive teaching on that. But I'm going to start with, with Abraham. So just you can just kind of like draw a line if you're taking notes. And uh, there are admittedly, as with almost anything you can teach in the Bible, differences of opinion on the precision of these dates. So I don't want you to form a new denomination. Um, if you differ from me or you hear someone that believes it's a hundred years earlier or a hundred years later. Okay. We're not going to get into all that, but we're going to give some generalities here. So Abraham and what chapter of Genesis do we pick up on Abraham in? Anybody remember? 11. So first 10 and a half chapters is everything up to and following the flood. And then we get into the Abrahamic covenant in chapter 11, right? Am I correct on that? Okay. So when you think of Abraham, you're thinking of a guy that lived to 19... 91. Now, this is BC. Okay? So, Abraham. You don't even need to remember those specific dates. But just remember this. About 2,000 years before Jesus was Abraham, and about 2,000 years after Abraham or after Jesus, we're sitting in this room tonight. So, roughly the same amount of time from us to Jesus is from Jesus to Abraham. Now, I think we would all say, man, that was a long time ago that Jesus was around, 2,000 years. Think of all the stuff that took place in the last 2,000 years. That's a long time. Well, you got to double that to go back to Abraham. So, from Abraham to Jesus isn't some short little 50-year span or 100-year span. We're talking like roughly 2,000 years before Jesus was Abraham. So that's a long time. And therefore, you would expect, would you not expect that some of the customs in Abraham's day were mildly different than they were in Jesus' day? Wouldn't you expect that some of the situations that Abraham encountered were a little different than what Jesus did? Jesus encountered or the apostles encountered. So you got to think about that. There's so much difference between living in 21st century Canada and living in the first century province of Palestine and how much more from there back to Abraham. So you're going to expect when you read the Bible that customs and culture changes 2000 years earlier, as opposed to uh, at the time of Jesus. And of course, up till now. So then fast forward, next big event is the Exodus. So most of the time we date Exodus to 1446. So Exodus, we have a book named, named this, but Exodus, for those of you that may be newer to the study of scripture, is, refers to the event where God supernaturally allowed over a million Jews to 
escape from captivity in Egypt after they'd been there for four centuries, which is also a long time. So Exodus, so just if you wanted to remember a rough number, just think about 1500 years before Jesus is the Exodus event. Next is the period of the judges. When you're reading the judges, the book of judges, what is the most repeated phrase in the book? Okay. Everyone did what they wanted or, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. When you're reading it, you're like, okay, even if I've never read any further, God, God must be about to deal with this because it's obviously not working. But in the time of judges prior to the Kings, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. 1375 to 1050. 1375, some people think it was 1030, but who cares? Um, Just given rough dates. So now, by the time the the period of the judges ended, roughly speaking, how far are we ahead from Abraham? Another thousand years. So have you ever read right through the Bible from Genesis right, right through to Revelation? Anybody ever done that? Hey, how long does it take you to read from like the opening verses of Genesis through to Judges? A couple months if you're, it takes you a thousand years. <laughs> Depends how good of a reader you are. So, you know, if maybe you're reading four or five chapters a night, it'll take you maybe a couple of months or something like that. Well, you've just, you just read through a thousand years of human history. And sometimes we just forget that. Like we're thinking this, these guys must've all kind of known each other. Like Samson probably went to the coffee shop with (laughs) Abraham, but it's a thousand years separating them. Then we have the divided kingdom. So 931 or sorry, the United Kingdom, the the original United Kingdom. (laughs) So the United Kingdom They didn't call it that at the time because they weren't anticipating a divided kingdom. But the United Kingdom is the period in Israel's history where all 12 tribes were under one king. And how much time do we have there? Around 200 years. So during that period of time, Um, we have, uh, Saul, we have, um, Mephibosheth for like, what, a few days or weeks or months or whatever it might've been. We have David, we have Solomon, we have Rehoboam and Rehoboam's an idiot. So he decides instead of listening to the veteran advisors that made his father like the most awesome king on earth that he would listen to his drinking buddies and the kingdom is split. So um, the kingdom is split. And then we have, we enter into a period of the divided, sorry. No, I wrote my, I got ahead of myself here. Fix my dates. 1050 to 931. Okay. 1050 to 931 United Kingdom. So we have about closer to a hundred years. So we have the four 
kings ruling. The kingdom is then divided. And the next period then, as you can guess, is the divided kingdom. And that goes from 931 to 722. So the reason why this is important, especially important, is when you read prophets. So the last third or so of the Old Testament is a bunch of prophets, major prophets and minor prophets. Now, that has nothing to do with their stature or how important their message was. It just had to do with the the length of the books they wrote. So you have Jeremiah, it's a pretty big book. Isaiah, pretty big book. Ezekiel, big book. Daniel, big book. Major prophets. Minor prophets, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Mike, and Am, and so forth. Okay, those are minor prophets because they're just little books. Sometimes, okay, I know it's late, but sometimes... You have southern prophets prophesying to the south. Sometimes you have southern prophets prophesying to the north. Sometimes you have northern prophets prophesying to the south. Sometimes you have northern prophets prophesying to the north. Sometimes you have southern prophets prophesying to the north, but the north not, never received the letter. It was for the purpose of encouraging the south. And on and on and on, all kinds of different combinations. So when you read the prophets you got to kind of figure out, okay, which side are they on and who are they writing to? And then who actually received the letter? And that'll help you to figure out why they said what they said. And so understanding that there's a divided kingdom here where 10 tribes took up residence in the North and they were called Israel or at times Ephraim and two tribes stayed in the South, Judah and Benjamin, and they were just generally called Judah that's kind of an important thing for you to wrap your mind around when you're reading the prophets. Now, the divided kingdom here, the reason why, does anybody know what happened here that brought an end to the divided kingdom? Assyria conquered the northern kingdoms in 722 and basically took the vast majority of the northern Jews off into Assyrian captivity. And there was never really any time when they en masse immigrated back. The people that remained behind, the few Jews that remained behind, what happened to them? No, the, the, no Judah was still in the south. So I'm talking about in the north. So they didn't obviously take 100% of the people. They took most, but they didn't get everybody. So the few Jews that stayed in the north, what happened to them? Did they intermarry with the um, Syrians? Yeah. Samaritans. Samaritans, exactly. So the Assyrians are like, well, we don't want to let, let the land just kind of grow wild. So they would bring in other people groups that they'd conquered elsewhere in the world, small groups, Gentiles. And they would obviously, you know, boy meets girl. Then a few hundred years go by and they formed a new people group called the Samaritans. And, you know, later in biblical history, the Jews looked down on the Samaritans more than they did with the Gentiles because, well, the Gentiles are Gentile dogs, but the Samaritans are compromisers. They're half and half. So that's what happened then. And the Southern kingdom 
stays uh, in their southern borders until 586. And 586 is um, when Judah is taken captive, what we call the Babylonian captivity. What would be a couple pretty significant players in the Bible that prophesied during the Babylonian captivity? Anybody know? Daniel. So Daniel was a young guy who was taken from his home into Babylon. And there he he distinguished himself under several kings as a man of God. Who was his contemporary? Ezekiel. So Ezekiel and Daniel are prophesying during that time. So they, they're in Babylon for about 70 years. And the, ret- the return to the land starts in 536 and following. So this is like the return to the land under Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and all these different figures. And the temple, the temple is completed, the new temple in 516. So that's where you get the 70 years from 586 to here. Okay. So the temple is completed. I'll give you two more points, but I won't write them up here because I'm out of space. The last uh, prophet on the scene is actually the last book of the English Bible, Malachi. He finishes up his writing around the year 400 BC. Now, there's a pretty good chance that Esther might have been written a little bit after that, even though it's recording events much earlier. But the last major writer is uh, Malachi. And then we enter into what people call the 400 years of silence, which is a period of time within which we don't have any... uh, biblical books being written. There's still a lot going on. I taught a course here. I actually found it fascinating because I'd never really studied that 400 year period too much, but I taught a course here, I don't know, a few years ago on um, or origins of the people of Israel and that, and a new kingdom actually rose up during that period of time called the Hasmonians under the Maccabees. So there was actually a monarchy established in Israel for a few generations under the, the Maccabean family, and it was called the Hasmonean dynasty. And um, they were conquered by the occupying forces. But there's, there's some fascinating things that take place in there. And that's where you get books like Maccabees and other apocryphal books being written, recording the history of that period of time. And you'll know that about 500 years ago at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church decided to include those in the Holy Canon of Scripture. So if you've ever opened like a Catholic Bible and you see a section called the Apocrypha, those are books recording or written during that 400 year period. Now, none of them claim to be the Bible. They're not quoted authoritatively by Jesus or the apostles. And there's some spurious material in them, stuff that's uh, erroneous, but there's also some good stuff there. And they're actually worth reading to try to understand a little bit more about that period of time. So that is the uh, overview. So, These are just major events. And I would say you should probably know all of these dates within a few years. If you're going to be a good student of the Bible, you don't have to remember the specifics. You're thinking, okay, Abraham, 
2,000 years before Christ, 1,500 years before Christ, 13 to 1,000, 1,300 to 1,000 years before Christ, around 1,000, know the 722 date, know the Babylonian captivity date, and that will be hugely helpful in your study of uh, the scriptures, especially the, the Old Testament. Does anybody have any questions about that? Because I want to talk about arrangement. I want to talk about arrangement. So you got your Bibles, right? Do you know your books of the Bible? Can you find your way around the books of the Bible? Okay, you should. It's not helpful to use a phone or electronic device all the time because you'll never learn the, the, uh, the ability to find a book in the Bible, right? But it's good to memorize the books of the Bible and to know what follows what. In the English Bible, we have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and so forth right through to Malachi. 39. And the reason why they're arranged that way mostly has to do with chronology, chronological considerations. So you're like, well, what book should I put at the beginning of the Bible? I might as well put the one that deals with creation first. Um, what book should I put at the end of the Bible? I might as well put a prophetic book that was written last at the end of the Bible. And then I'm going to cluster up various historical books. So that I'm kind of reading chronologically more or less through the Bible. So that's basically why the English Bible has the order it does. But what we need to do is to think more about the biblical history than the order of books. So I think this kind of stuff that I've put up is more important to understand, to read your Bible well than necessarily the order that they are in the English Bible. The only benefit of knowing the order they are in the English Bible is to find your way around the Bible. But let me give you some examples. Chances are Job was written before Genesis. How could that be? Because Genesis was written way after the events took place. So even if you were to, let's say, pick a date for creation like... um, 6,000 BC. Um, Moses is not living in 6,000 BC. And we know that Moses wrote the majority of the first five books of the Bible. He couldn't have written the end because it includes his obituary. Um, So the, the books are being written, recording events that took place earlier. But if you just read, if you're like a student of Hebrew, and you're reading through Genesis in Hebrew, and then you're reading through Job, you're like, this is just, this is like much older language. And it borrows words from people groups that really had no proximity to Moses when he was writing the book of Genesis. So like in our culture, we're pretty, uh, in English culture, we're pretty connected to the French, right? Because our country is bilingual. So we have French words that have crept into the English language. Maybe we have some Lebanese words. I just don't know of any. But if all of a sudden Canada was shifted over next to Lebanon, chances are the English language would start to have some Lebanese words mixed in with it. And so when 
uh, scholars study books of the Bible and they find what are called loan words, words that are borrowed from other languages. They can kind of study those out. And if they're older or from a certain culture, they can speculate that maybe the people that wrote that were living in closer proximity. I mean, there's no internet, so there has to be a geographical proximity or some sort of a highway that links the two people groups. They can speculate that these people groups must've been living together at a certain period of time. So I'm just using that as an extended example to point out that Job happens to have a lot of loan words in it from a lot of different people groups and a lot of different languages. And, Genesis just reads a little bit differently than that. And later Hebrew writing reads a little bit differently as well. So when you're reading the Bible, it's important to think about biblical history more than the order of books. So you're reading a book. Okay. What, what time period is this written in and recording? Secondly, think about not only when was the book written, but who received what it records for the very first time. Do you know how much work it would take to write out even Joel's prophecy? You got to write this out by hand. I mean, it's orderly. It's there's poetry in there. There's a clear understanding of biblical backgrounds and prophetic history, just a little book, but you're writing all this out. And then you probably have to make multiple copies to get it circulated. There's no printing press or photocopiers. So you didn't just, they didn't just produce literature to the degree that you and I do. We can send out 50 emails in a day. We can write, we have word processing programs. We don't have to form our letters. We just hit buttons on our, on our keypads and it produces the character for us or the letter. But writing was very, was a lot of work uh, thousands of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I had a friend who, um, him and I went to a Bible exhibit and he took, he didn't write out the old Testament. He wrote the whole Bible. I think it took him four or five years. So he just thought it'd be cool to write. He was a retired police officer. He decided to write out the whole Bible by hand and, um, good way to kind of get to know it, but you also have to have legible handwriting. Which I don't, so wouldn't work for me. But a lot of work. And so you wonder, like, why did this person go to all that effort to write this book? Well, obviously, they're inspired by the Holy Spirit and all that. But there's a reason for it. There's a, there's an, we call it an occasion. There's an occasion that precipitated the writing. So when we read any book of the Bible, this applies to the New Testament too. We're interested in authorship. We're interested in time period. We're interested in the occasion and the audience, of course. So I I can benefit from Romans 2000 years after it was written, but I can benefit more if I understand the occasion or occasions that brought about its writing. Now the Hebrews, they divided the Hebrew Bible into the law, the prophets and the writings. So law, Prophets. I was going to bring like a a Hebrew Old Testament from my office, but I forgot it. But when you look at a Hebrew Bible, this is how it's arranged. So the law, 
you know this word, Torah, okay? It's not actually super awesome to call it the law because most of it's not about law. The word probably should be translated as instruction, but we've just called it the law for so long it's like stuck. But the word Torah, they wouldn't call it the law, they call it the Torah, is the first five books of the Bible and um, includes basic instructions. Then the prophets, Nevi'im, Nevi'im, that's what they would call it. And then the writings are the Ketuvim. Uh, that's a U. That is a V. Ketuvim. So Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. So when you open up a Hebrew Bible, you have the same first five books we do. Then they take all the prophets. So you know all the prophets that we've pushed to the end of our Bible? Those are there. And then all the writings would be like the Psalms, the wisdom literature, the Psalm of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, Job, all of that is at the end. So the law, prophets, and writing, law, prophets, and writing, law, prophets, and writing. And this is helpful because this is what Jesus would have called it. When Jesus says, doesn't the law teach? He's, he's referring to the first five. Didn't the prophet say he's referring to the prophet books? I can't think of an example of where he might've said, don't the writings say, but there might be one in the scriptures. I'm just not sure. Um, if he were to say that he would be referring to what are called the writings and Hebrews would have considered all of this God's word. And this is kind of weird for us, but they would have put a little like, shall we say star beside this one. It was kind of like a little more God's word, a little more important, a little more elevated there's a greater significance attached to the Torah than there would have been to the prophets and the writings. So I would guess that a scholar, uh, a Jewish scholar, a Pharisee, if he was in his Bible would spend more time here and be more concerned about what this says than what that says. Although he would be familiar with it. Okay. So this is just all kind of like some general background stuff. Now, what I would like to do, is spend the rest of our night in the Torah. So the Torah is more commonly called by Christians the Pentateuch. So I might just switch back and forth and refer to both. So we're going to talk about the Torah or the Pentateuch. So we're talking about Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, th these five books were written to be read as one single book. 
one book, not five. They were, they obviously were never written on one scroll. There'd be too much material, but they're considered one book conceptually one book. And the fivefold division and actually giving them separate names that actually took place later on. Okay. So that, that took place much later on. So early Jews wouldn't have thought, Oh, let's, uh, let's do a study in Leviticus or let's do a study in numbers. They would have thought of it as one book. And over time, as the scrolls, you know, obviously were clearly divided and you'd, you'd go to scroll number two, it was given a name. So super creative of them. The way that they decided to name the scrolls was based upon basically the first words in the scroll. So they didn't call it Genesis. They called it Bereshith, which means the beginning. So which scroll are we going to look at? We're going to look at Bereshith. You know how it starts in the beginning. Exodus was called Shemoth, which means the names. Leviticus. I don't want any snickering. Was called Viacra. Which means, and he called. It's the first word there. Numbers was called Bamidbar, which means in the desert. And Deuteronomy was called Devarim, which means words. So that's what the Hebrews would have called these five sections now to the Torah. So it's like, well, where do we get these names? So Genesis, I'll just go through these real quick. Genesis comes from a Greek word meaning birth. So that's why we've given it that name. It's, it's about like the birth of the world, the birth of the you know, first peoples and all that kind of thing. Exodus is also from the Greek. Ek means out. Odos means road or way. So it's the road out or the way out. So Genesis means birth. Exodus means road out. Those are both from Greek words. Leviticus didn't come from the Greek, but it came from the Latin. And it just means about the Levitical priest. So Leviticus, Levitical priest. So in the Latin, it's about the Levitical priest. So that's where it got its English name. Numbers is um, based upon the Septuagint, which was a later Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And it simply refers to the concept of a census. So when you take a census, what are you doing? You're counting people. You're numbering them. And then Deuteronomy, uh, namos is the Greek word for uh, law. Deut, two. So Deuteronomy means the second law. Now, interestingly, I'll just take you really quickly to... Um, Deuteronomy 17 and look at verse 18 Deuteronomy 17, 18. Okay. And in the English standard version is a really good job here. It says, and when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, 
This is Deuteronomy 17, 18. He shall write for himself in a book, a copy of the law approved by the Levitical priest. So this was misunderstood as meaning the second law. So Deuteronomy then was called the second law, but the word second was mistranslated. It should, it should have, um, they should have understood. It was just a copy of the law. Now check this out. These first five books alone, I've written a whole bunch of stuff down here. So write some of this stuff down. It contains number one, an account of the, actually two accounts, one in prose and one in narrative, an account of the creation of the world. There's no other record of that in scripture. It's found in the Bereshith. The entry of sin into the world. Consequences of sin. The flood judgment. God's election of a chosen people. Do you know what the patriarchs are? Those early fathers of the Jews. So we have Abraham. And then who? Isaac. And then Jacob. Never the firstborn. Which is totally contrary to ancient Near Eastern law but it says something about the way God works. Um, those are the patriarchs, Joseph. Those are the patriarchs, the, the, the big names, the heads of the families in Genesis. The period of the patriarchs, God's covenant relationship with Abraham, God's covenant relationship with the whole nation through Moses, God's faithfulness, to the Jewish people in the face of rebellion and slavery. By the way, if you were, if, if you, if you wanted to visually illustrate the spirituality that you would like to characterize your life, I think it would be like this. Here you are. It'd be like this, right? You just want to keep growing up in godliness and holiness. I think all of us would be like, yeah, I, I would like that to be my life. The people of Israel, it's like this. <laughs> like the whole of the Old Testament is that. It's cycles of obedience and rebellion, obedience and rebellion, obedience and rebellion. And there's more detail to it. Like you have obedience, rebellion, confrontation, repentance, reorientation. You can track it out. But essentially, it's like that. They're like, they're like yo-yos. They're ups and, up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down. And you might say, well, that's kind of like my life. Well, it shouldn't be quite that bad because God said there's a reason why he sent the Holy Spirit and gave us a completed canon of scripture. Joel said the law is going to be written on our hearts. So we have, a, we have what we call a redemptive historical advantage over the Old Testament Jews. But th- those are things that we see in the Old Testament. God's faithfulness to the Jewish people in the face of rebellion and slavery. We have the captivity in Egypt. We have, as we've mentioned, the Exodus event. Huge, the giving of the law to govern the people. Moral law and ceremonial law is found there. 
universal law and law specific to that ethnic group. It's given in the law, the books of the law. And then we have the voyages and the journeys of Israel and seeking to possess the promised land. That's a pretty significant list. I, I don't think any of us would dare to say that if I knew about none of that, I could be like totally awesome. In my understanding of the new Testament, like all of these things are so foundational to reading the new Testament. And if you don't understand them, yeah, I mean, God can still work in spite of our ignorance, but we're going to, it's going to be like looking through a mud splattered window. It's just not going to be super clear. So all of these books are so foundational to everything else that we read about in God's word. And that's why we need to study the Pentateuch and uh, understand it. Well, let me give you some, let me give you a list of reasons why we should study the Pentateuch. Number one. Okay. I'm going to make you give me number one. So this is actually an order of importance. What would be the number one reason why it'd be a good idea for you to read the Pentateuch? Because it's God's word. God gave it to us. And so as Holy Scripture, we, we should probably spend some time there. Here are some other reasons. And uh, I probably have six or seven of them here, but the first three all, all, are all about foundations. So the second one is, it contains foundational doctrine. Foundational doctrine. It doesn't include all doctrine. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the New Testament but it includes foundational doctrine. So theology proper, this is what we call the study of God himself. So theology is the study of anything that God said to us, but theology proper is the study of God. Like who is God? Who is he? Or if you're in another religion, like who is she or who is it or who are they? That's your theology proper. For us, it's who is he? Where did he come from? Where is he? What is he? What's his constitutional makeup? Is he an animal? Is he a spirit? Is he a man? Like what is God? What are his characteristics or attributes? What are his abilities? What are his expectations? Right? This is all part of our theology proper. We get the foundation of that from the Torah. I mean, how, how can you not read the Torah and come away realizing that God is holy? Right? Like if you came away with nothing else, you, you need to come away with that. The first thing that you would encounter about God in the opening book is what? He is what? He's the creator. That's kind of foundational. I mean, that has implications for how I live my life. We often say around here, creatures don't apologize to creatures, what the creator has said. So that statement flows from a foundational belief we picked up in the Bereshith, the first book of the Bible, which is God creates. And if he's the creator and I'm the created, then I ain't going to apologize to some other creature for what the creator said. Like his word trumps all of our words. 
And so that shapes my worship. That shapes my, my approach to scripture, my, my understanding of obedience and expectations and so much more. Our anthropology is found in the uh, opening books of the Bible. So anthropology is all about the study of humanity. What's one of the first things we find out about ourselves in Genesis? We're made in the likeness of God, the imago dei. We're image bearers. Any implications for that for your life this week? For how you treat people? For why we would fight for the unborn? For our perspectives on punishment? Oh, all of that builds off of the doctrine that we are made in the image and likeness of God. Now we need to understand what that means, of course, but those are the kind of questions that are uh, uh, asked and answered when you read it. Hamartiology. Hamartiology starts with an H. Hamart, I all O G is the study of sin. And whether we think about this much or not, the average Canadian out there that doesn't know Jesus has a different homartiology than you do. And you see it in the news and you see it in sociology classes. My, my daughter is a, a BSW student at the University of Windsor. Talk about waiting for a lot of B, C. <laughs> a lot of, it's just garbage. So messages are, are like, um, well, you know why you have a problem? Because your mom and dad. Or because the government didn't pay for enough of your upbringing. Or um, you don't have a big enough self-esteem. Or you don't think like a winner. Uh, and that whole notion of like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, put your chest out, take the world by storm. Don't let anybody push you around. You can do whatever you want. You can accomplish whatever you want. The world's out for you to enjoy. That's all BC before Christ. <laughs> and um, it flows from a homarchology that's very different than ours, that you're like a victim. And, and yet the, new, the, the, the Old Testament from the earliest chapters are like, no, there was no peer pressure. There was no bad parenting. There was no incompetent pastors. There were no CD billboards. There were no lacks in the area of wealth. And we still sinned. So that's kind of significant. You'd be just as bad as, as you are today, as bad off as you are today, if you were born on an island with no one else around. So we gain that understanding this, the, the, uh, like the seminal understanding of homardiology from the opening chapter. Soteriology, the study of salvation. The, the, I mean, right out of the gates, God starts to commend sacrifices for sin. And that affects our understanding of atonement later on in the Levitical codes. Pneumatology, even our understanding of the Holy Spirit is fleshed out early on. Spirit of God's hovering over the surface of the deep. Satanology, 
we don't have to go more than two and a bit chapters to learn something about Satan. We don't have to wait till Revelation to find out about Satan. We find out about him very early in the Bible. And then angels, angelology. So, why study the Pentateuch? Well, foundational doctrine. is found there. Even the, doc, the New Testament doctrine of election. It's amazing how many people want to have conversations about the New Testament doctrine of election and they disregard the doctrine of election in the Old Testament, which starts very early on. No, I'm not going to accept Cain's offering. I'm going to accept Abel's. No, I'm, I'm not going to pick Ishmael, not going to pick Esau, not going to pick Judah, the smallest, the obscure, the unexpected, over and over and over again. I'm going to pick this people to the exclusion of these people. Like, the most ridiculous thing you can ever do as a student of the Bible is to reject some doctrine of election. Like, if you reject some form of a doctrine of election, my respect for you goes like down to the ground because yeah, you can debate different chapters in the new Testament, but you, you have to throw out your whole first 39 books. If you don't believe in some form of a doctrine of sovereign choice. So if you're reading it authentically, I mean, you can detail it out differently, but you have to accept some form of a doctrine of sovereign choice. If you're going to be even remotely honest with the first 39 books of the Bible. It's just, it's just there over and over.